I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Azadine T. Downs. He's the president of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and he also spent many years working with the Peace Corps in places like Morocco, Yemen, Bulgaria, and more. In his delightful memoir, The Couscous Chronicles, he shares stories from his time abroad. The stories are often humorous, like when he becomes friends with the glue-sniffing shoemakers of Fez, or finds himself shepherding a breakdancing troupe. And he shares some things that were terrifying or just aggravating, like when he tries to ship diapers to his new home overseas. Throughout it all, he writes in a way that is conversational and engaging, like sitting down with a friend to catch up on years gone by, all the while giving us a glimpse into different cultures and ways of life. Azadine, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I know. I'm really excited uh, to talk about the book, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So this isn't a cookbook. Why did you call it the Couscous Chronicles? Yeah, well, that's a great way to start. Um, it's not a cous- it's not a cookbook. Uh, and I did get some interesting questions early on from people saying, I thought couscous was just a salad. And that really surprised me because couscous, um, <clears throat> it's a it's a it's a dish uh, that takes a long time to prepare. Uh, a whole morning and we in Morocco you eat it every day every Friday um, after prayers and so couscous plays a part in in the book because um, of the way uh, that it, it it focuses on some cultural issues some religious issues about who gets to eat what and and how you eat and the etiquette of, of eating um, so I thought it would be kind of funny to call it the Couscous Chronicles because couscous uh, is something that I love to eat and everyone should definitely try it in the real way, not not as a little side dish, mm. as a salad. Well, that's one of the things that I loved. You, you describe a meal that you had uh, earlier in your time in Morocco with your adopted Moroccan family. And there are so many layers. It's not just sitting around to have a meal. It's you know, the way you're served may be indicative of how your mother feels about you that day or about, you know, something else. So was that something that was a surprise to you? It, it was a surprise because, you know, in Morocco, the, the joke uh, always is, well, eat, eat, eat. You didn't eat anything. And then it's usually, OK, stop eating. You know, so <laughs> they, 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 the, the families always say, you know, eat, eat, you ate nothing. Uh, but then if you keep eating, uh, then you get your hand slapped because, you, you know, your mom or, or someone in the family said, well, leave something for the others. Uh, but the couscous uh, is interesting, but it, it's true of some other Moroccan dishes. And I think um, in another, you know, Islamic countries where there is there is meat uh, in the couscous. Uh, meat is typically expensive. Not everyone can afford to have uh, a lot of meat. And so when you have guests, and this is something that I was thrown off of because I thought, well, you know, people are inviting me all the time to have couscous on Fridays. But then I realized that for many people, uh, having a guest is a financial burden. Mm. And so, you know, I was always careful about, well, don't, don't dig in, don't be, don't be, uh, hoggish about the food. But with the couscous also, is, and, and this is true of other dish, dishes, because you eat out of a 
communal dish. So one dish is put in the middle. Not everyone has their own dish. Uh, and you're supposed to stay in your little section. And uh, if the meat, which is usually, you know, the prized possession of the dish, uh, falls towards you, I'm thinking, well, it's just, you know, luck of the draw. But, you know, my, my Moroccan mother, as I refer to her, uh, would always say, well, no, it's it's baraka. It's by the grace of God that that meat fell to you. But then I would notice she was giving it to, you know, kind of the favorite son all the time. And I thought, well, how much of a role is, you know, Allah of God playing in eating this dish? So there was a lot of there was a lot of um, things that you had to learn so that you could be polite. Mm. Uh, and especially when you're going to people's homes. You also found out, as we learn reading the book, that eating couscous in the wrong time and place with the wrong person could lead to some interesting misunderstandings. Do you want to tell that story a little bit? Yeah. So uh, this is when I first went to Morocco, you know, and we I was with the Peace Corps and we learned uh, Moroccan Arabic. And But it was just over the summer. And so I thought when I got to the city of Fez, I should, you know, carry on with my studies. And so I met uh, a woman, a Moroccan woman, who was a math teacher. And uh, I told her that I wanted to have uh, more Arabic lessons uh, and I needed a tutor. And she volunteered. And I said, well, that, that's great. And I went to her house first time and there was no one else there. There was no family members there, which I thought was very odd. But she said, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. We had tea. The second time, I noticed that there were no books. There were no Arabic language books. There was just this massive couscous. And um, I kept asking, well, where's your, where's your mother? Where's your father? Uh, and she said, well, uh, they're, not, uh, they're busy. They're busy. They can't see you. And it turned into this real drama uh, that actually, you know, I never really found out um, if I was driven out of that school or they just made up a story to transfer me to Casablanca. But basically, she said, Listen, we've had couscous together unchaperoned, and uh, that must mean that you love me and you want to marry me. And I thought, my God, what is going on here? I have to run for my life. So I thought, well, couscous must have had some sort of significance in her mind that, you know, we've shared couscous alone, uh, which was not done. And um, I must have known the significance of doing that. And therefore, uh, I was going to marry her, which I did not want to do. <laughs> She, or at least, I guess, uh, remnants of that encounter pop up from time to time throughout the book. Yeah, you know, because she put a curse on me, and, and she's the one who told me that she put a curse on me, and or a spell. I, I think of it more of as a curse uh, than a spell, and it was to get me to marry her. And um, there were times when she... I guess these days that you would say she was a stalker uh, because she stalked me and she just would not let it go. Um, and it became very, very public, which was an embarrassment to me. And I thought, you know, the storyline here is that every time I think uh, I might be in charge of my own destiny, either the curse of Fatuma or, you know, a, a higher hand is, is guiding me in, in, my, in my life. And all of these experiences that I that I had, um, but whenever I heard the name Fatuma come up again, I thought, "Oh no, this is not a person that I want to be involved with." Because I always thought back of that curse that she put on me. 
You know, I was thinking reading this book that if I ever had to recommend a book to someone that might exemplify the mantra of just roll with it, this yeah. might be <laughs> the book in there because of so many of the experiences that you shared. And I and I love how the book is framed because it's less of a linear memoir, here's my life's story in detail approach. And it's a series of stories about your life and your experiences in the world. And it, it feels like the kind of stories that you would share in person over a cup of tea. Is So was that, was that intentional in how you wanted to approach the it writing was. part of this? Yeah, no, it was intentional. And I'm glad you're asking me that because that was a lot of back and forth, honestly, uh, when um, when I was discussing with the, the publisher and some of the copywriters. Um, that issue of what is linear and what isn't linear uh, was very, very important to me because one, living in uh, the Middle East, life life is not linear. And I think that um, many people want it to be, they want their life to be laid out and you go from A to B to C and there's a plan. And if you don't follow that necessarily, that you are or you are not successful. Um, and so my my sense of, of even conversations and and getting to agreements in the work that I do is much more circular than it is linear. Um, and the issue of time, um, the time travel was something that I played with a lot more mm. earlier uh, in earlier renditions of the book. Um, but that really was what life was like living in the old city in the Medina in Fez and then going to the new city. I mean, I didn't have a telephone. I didn't have electricity most of the day. I didn't have water most of the day. Um, I didn't have uh, all of the things that uh, you know allow us to communicate so easily these days, you know, telephones. There was a seven year waiting list to have a telephone. Uh, so I never had any of those things. And um, going out of that, that city was really like coming out of medieval times into a more modern uh, part of the city, which was built by the by the French colonials. And you help us and with so, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so lin the 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 linear part of the book, uh, I, I I think some some readers said, well, it was kind of confusing because they're expecting, just as many of the people I encountered, they expected a certain. Uh, way for the book to unfold or the story to unfold. But that's just not the way my life was. And and it works so well. I love that you give us, you know, for example, the first time you went to Morocco as a member of the Peace Corps, and you say this was in 1981 or 1402 in the Islamic calendar, and you weave in that history, that sense of history that the people you lived with still have over something that may have happened centuries before. Yeah, you know, I, I start the book in 1402, um, and one of the themes that I played with was this notion of, you know, time travel. And it, um, if, if you are a very um, literal person, you will think, well, perhaps that can't be true. You know, a, a, a lot of the a, a lot of the people who first read the book said, well, this can't be true, that can't be true. But everything is true. Of course, I embellish things to tell a story, but... Uh, all of those things uh, are true. And I found in Morocco, I found it in Bulgaria when people were referring to you know, the Turks who were there 500 years ago, uh, that they that was much more alive to them than the occupation of, 
um, a communist regime that was in place. That was true in Jerusalem. People would talk about um, events that happened a thousand years ago with such passion, you felt as though it was something that was actually happening fairly recently. And even there, this sense that you had to be placed in the proper context. What does your name mean? Who gave it to? Who is your father? Who is your mother? Who is your family? What's their history? Uh, what's their nationality? Um, what side of the political fence do they sit? All of the indicators that perhaps tell people who you are and explain quickly uh, where to put you in a, in a box, uh, I didn't have those things. And my indicators perhaps were way off. And so there was this constant quarrelness about, well, who are you really? Who are you really? Yeah. Uh, even when you were talking about things 500 years ago. Why is that so important in that culture? A lot of it, I think, has to do with language. The Moroccan Arabic, um, it has a lot of French in it. Uh, and I, I'm a French speaker as well. And so I didn't even realize how much French it had in it. But why? Because there was the French colonial uh, period. When I went to Jerusalem, they would refer to um, Morocco as Marrakesh. They, they, they refer to the country as um one of the the royal capitals. So there were four capitals, you know, in Morocco and Fez and the imperial cities. And I kept saying, but that's not the name of the country. And I said, well, you know, isn't that where the king, you know, in this particular period lived? And it was very important to them. In particular in Jerusalem, it was very difficult because they wanted to know, you know, uh, were you pro-Israeli? Were you pro-Palestinian? Um, where was where was your family? Do you have Palestinian background? Um, but all of these things, um, just describing in Morocco, a foreigner was uh, called a Nasrani, and Nasrani comes from you know Nazareth, mm -hmm. and so it was a Christian. Whether it didn't matter whether you were Christian or Buddhist or Jewish, uh, you were a foreigner. Um, in in Jerusalem. Uh, they they use different words for 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 Christian, and so you weren't necessarily a foreigner because there were lots of Christian Palestinians, uh, and and they they weren't all Muslim, and so you really had to learn to to navigate both language, culture, and history, uh, and if you didn't have a sense of history. Um, I would say that you were sort of set aside as not being, you know, very well educated about your own family history, and that made you somehow mm, less important, maybe. Mm. There were also a lot of people very interested in your marital status. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, does that play into whether or not you would be a potential good husband in the future? Well, you know, the the thing about um, expectations is that uh, even though we talked a little bit about, you know, a linear path in life, um, the the concept of what we say in Arabic, maktub, it, it's written. And whether that's fate uh, or karma or you know, a plan that's laid out for you by God, 
you you do need to sort of fit into uh, the plan. And so a young man, and uh, I was a teacher at the time, so you're professional. And so therefore you should be married, you should have a family. And why haven't you done those things? And so, um, particularly because I was Muslim, and um, you know, there like like Fatuma. I mean, <laughs> she told me when I asked her, I said, "Well, why why is it that you're so intent on marrying me?" And she finally said, "Well, because I bought this condo and I can't keep up with the mortgage payments." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, okay, so you're using me, you know, to 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 get out of debt." Um, <clears throat> which is probably not all that unusual for people to, you know, sort of think of like, where am I in my life? Um, but yeah, you know, I, I found it very interesting that people, um, people didn't have the same boundaries perhaps as you, know, you, you would think in the West, you wouldn't necessarily uh, delve into uh, people's personal lives or uh, why they're married or they're not married and can they have children and, and all of these things. Uh, but that's that's how that's what life was like. And so, you know, in the book, when I'm describing some of these things, I I tell the story as if uh, I'm a child learning these things for the first time. And that was true, even though I was in my 20s. Hmm. Hmm. One of the other things that really struck me about this book was describing this culture um, where people are so passionate about themselves, about their culture, passionate about hospitality, but at the same time, there's this thread of violence that's there almost daily. I was really struck by the stories you told about um, going to a mosque and seeing men with guns inside, and that was yeah. just accepted, or your time in Yemen when everybody seemed to be armed, and we're very casual about it. How, what was it like as you say, going back and forth between those worlds and perhaps the Western world, how was, what was it like just coming to terms with that? You know, uh, I was in a discussion the other day doing a book event uh, in, in Harvard, uh, and someone asked me a question similar to that about, did I ever think that the violence would be uh, sort of the end of me? And And in Yemen, I have to admit that there were times when I opened the gate to our house that I thought, yeah, I will be killed here. Uh, there's so much shooting and whether it would be random. Uh, the, the, the story I tell about the mosque is that so many people were armed in Yemen. Uh, sort of the, the, the notion on the street was that the government really only had control of the country around the capital, 50 kilometers, 50, you know, uh, 35 miles outside of the capital to the north. Outside of that circle, um, the tribes were in charge. And so all of the tribes were armed. And I would have to go back and forth. You know, we had volunteers in all sorts of very, very remote places. And, um, there are leaders or tribal leaders. And so the story about the mosque um, was that the Yemenis told me that, you know, a foreigner is somewhat safe because uh, the, the tribesmen don't want to shoot or kill a foreigner because it causes all sorts of problems. 
And uh, that was not true for um, the, the feuds that they had amongst themselves. And so I was sitting in the mosque thinking, you know, I'm just waiting for prayers. And suddenly people were shooed away from where I was sitting. And this older gentleman sat there. And um, on either side of us were what I learned were bodyguards with AK-47s placed on the on the floor. And as you pray, you, know, you put your head to the to the floor in prayer. And I looked off to the side and, you know, I'm staring into the barrel of an AK-47 and I'm thinking, one, this this thing could go off. Or two, is there going to be a firefight inside the mosque, which seemed improbable. But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, why why are they armed? And when I asked afterwards, they said, well, uh, he wants to sit next to you because um, if anyone comes to try to kill him, uh, they'll think twice because they might wind up killing you and you're a foreigner and that could cause us, you know, a lot of paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, there was a constant threat. There was a constant threat of, of violence. Um, and it would, there would be outbreaks of gunfire at night and there would be bombs going off at night. Uh, and then ultimately um, we were evacuated because of the violence that erupted in the first uh, Iraqi war, mm. you know, when the, when the Iraqis went into Kuwait. <clears throat> so, you know, violence, what, this is what I learned about violence, and it was especially true in, in Jerusalem, is that terrorism makes you afraid to do normal things. That's what it is. That's what terror is. It makes you so afraid to do the things that you would normally do. Walk down the street, take a bus, go to the market, have an ice cream. It could be any one of those simple, simple things. Uh, and it, and the, the terror disrupts your ability to uh, see those things uh, as, as a normal part of life. And that, that, that was something that, that, that we dealt with, you know, as a family um, in, in Yemen and in, in Jerusalem as well. Even with that, there, it is obvious from this book that there is so much about these places that you love. Yeah. They're incredible, incredible places and incredible experiences. And, and you know, we met so many, many wonderful people who invited us into their homes and into their into their lives. And there's so much misunderstood, I think, about the Middle East. Eastern Europe was a whole other experience. But there was even there, there was this overlay of, you know, the Islamic Ottoman Empire in in Bulgaria. And if, if, if you've never been to Bulgaria or read about it, I mean, it's an extraordinary place where dopey mountains and the music. But even I, the, 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 the communist regime really expunged so much culture from many of the countries uh, in Eastern Europe and cer certainly the former Soviet Union that this reemergence uh, of of culture was to me just extraordinary. And to see the younger people who hadn't spent the majority of their lives under a communist regime uh, learning more about their own country and traveling traveling across the country you know there were in in yemen for example and i tell the stories in the book you couldn't just go anywhere you wanted to go you had to have permission written permission to leave the city and if you didn't have it you couldn't travel but as things began to 
uh, loosen up, it was an extraordinary experience to go to places that in many cases no no foreigner had gone to. And, you know, being being Muslim, I was I was welcomed into places that perhaps other people would not be. But also, you know, the, I tell the story about, you know, having blue eyes and say, well, how can you be Muslim? You don't look Muslim. You don't. <laughs> so I got to a point where I just I, I just said, and I tell the story of the book. I said, listen, what is it that you want me to be? Uh, that's what I'll be today. Uh, and if that means that we can sit down and have a nice conversation with tea or coffee uh, and get beyond exactly who I am and what my background is, then then we're going to have a great experience. Mm. We're almost out of time. I just wanted to say you have spent so much time in so many parts of the world where, you know, things have been challenging. You're doing a lot of work to bring people together. And yeah. it just seems like our world today is, it's not getting better. But I'm, I'm yeah. just curious, like, what do you tell your family and your friends or even yourself that that keeps you focused on the work you do, that keeps you focused on on helping people? You know, one of the things that I say, and, and this is what motivates me personally, is that I don't want to be a part of managing the demise of the planet. I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to accept that the situation with climate change and the loss of biodiversity and, and the political spectrum that we face today, that, you, that I'm not going to give up. And this is something that, you know, Jane Goodall and I talk about a lot, and, and that's why she was so kind to write the foreword, is we talk about hope, and that if you don't have hope, we're not going to, we're not going to solve all of the problems that, that we have. And that's especially important, I think, for the younger people. Uh, the, other, the other thing, you know, and I hope this comes across in the book, is that despite, despite the challenges having a sense of humor is really critical i think and and that's something that jane goodall and i share and we laugh we laugh a lot you can't take yourself so seriously because you lose pain when you do that i think you lose patience and you lose your ability to listen and so a lot of what i try to do uh, to be successful in the work that i do is to listen and to be respectful and sometimes it's really, really, really difficult. And that's where I, I just, you know, I rely on my sense of humor to say, how in God's name have I got myself into this situation? <laughs> well, Azadine, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, it's great pleasure. Great pleasure, Crystal. Thank you so much. The Couscous Chronicles by Azadine T. Downs is available now. On the next episode of Off the Page, I talk with science fiction novelist Robert J. Sawyer about his most recent book, The Oppenheimer Alternative. It's a fantastic story about Robert Oppenheimer and the group of people he worked with in creating the atom bomb. But in this book, there's a twist. Instead of destruction, these scientists set out to save the world. I hope you'll join me for that conversation. Off the Page is supported by folks just like you who become members of your local public radio station. I hope you'll donate today either to your local station or you can visit WSKG.org, click on Donate, and send a few dollars our way. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sarakis. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>